Ecclesiastes is like a wise and strange Sherpa. Uh, The book is full of wisdom and can guide you up the mountain of life, but you don't turn to the pages of Ecclesiastes if you want to find an easy path. It offers no easy answers. If Ecclesiastes was our tour guide, it's the kind that takes you into the daily lives of people in the downtown east side before taking you into Yale Town. It gives you a guidebook to help you out, but the guidebook highlights the crisis in Yemen, the protests in Hong Kong, uh, the deaths of 167 on a flight caught in international hostilities, and the tragedy of a sports hero dying alongside his daughter with so much life still before them. Ecclesiastes, our strange and wise Sherpa, points out contradictions like the poverty of the rich and the merriment of the poor the urgency of the earth's climate, and the fleetingness of our lives. Our concern with the donut preferences of politicians and our powerlessness in the face of deathly viruses. And you start to wonder, why did I take this tour? Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is more like poetry than math. It's not going to try to make everything add up for us. But if you want to take a long, hard look at life, not as it might be, Uh, in this moment for you, or as you think it should be, but life as it really is in all its mess and complexity and tragedy, Ecclesiastes says there's still beauty and joy can still be found. I have to admit, as I've studied for this series, I started to regret choosing to preach through this book. It can be hard to understand. It can be bleak at moments, but Ecclesiastes is the book you turn to when you're tired of answers that feel cheap or shallow. It's here for us when we realize that faith doesn't fix everything. And it's also here for those of us that realize that life without faith doesn't work either. And so Ecclesiastes pulls us into this odd message. Nothing matters and everything matters. And it's written for anyone and everyone who has ears to hear. It doesn't contrast life without God versus life with God, because what the author of Ecclesiastes describes is life under the sun as every person experiences it, religious or irreligious, spiritual or faithful, skeptic or cynic alike. Now, the author of Ecclesiastes veiled their identity. The opening verse is the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And tradition has held that Solomon wrote this book and concealed his identity. And more recent scholarship says uh, that someone assumed the persona of a king. Either way, it seems fitting to me that after all this time, we don't know for certain who wrote Ecclesiastes because it makes the point of the book as a whole. Life is a fleeting breath, even for the rulers of nations. So we're going to simply call the author of this book by his pseudonym, The Preacher. And as we work through this book over the next 15 weeks, as we engage this material that is roughly 2,900 years old, I want you to keep two things in mind, and we'll come back to this again and again. First, we need to respect his choice of genre. This is wisdom literature in the form of a sermon. If you read an instruction manual for a microwave, with love letter expectations, you're going to be very let down or deeply confused. 
It's the same with Ecclesiastes. Hebraic wisdom is unafraid of contradiction and tension. It's meant to uh, provoke us. It's not meant to settle everything. It's trying to show us that one size does not fit all. It's designed to make us think, to stir us, to cause us to wrestle. And second, the author of Ecclesiastes writes from a limited vantage point. He does not have the full picture. He doesn't stand where we do looking back at the cross. He's not yet seen God come in the person of Jesus. And so sometimes we need to fill in the sketch provided by Ecclesiastes. And although Ecclesiastes is a part of God's inspired word, it is not the final word. It has to be read within the canon. And so with all of this in mind, Ecclesiastes uh, is a guide for real life. It's wisdom literature in the form of the sermon from a limited vantage point. Let's step into the book. Our reading this morning was from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and I want to make three points from that passage. Breath, toil, and gain. Breath, toil, and gain. So let's begin with our first point, breath. If you have a Bible, open it up to Ecclesiastes. Look at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Another translation puts it like this. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. These are the sort of things you would expect to hear if you sat down at the table with some undergraduates in philosophy. But this is not what we're accustomed to hearing in Scripture. But Ecclesiastes doesn't beat around the bush. It begins with a refrain that we'll see a few times throughout the book and with a word that we'll see many times throughout the book. And it's an important word. The word is havel. Havel. Say it with me. It's translated here as vanity or meaningless. But neither of these translations of the Hebrew word uh, capture the nuance as much as scholars would like it to. It's more accurately translated as breath. Is breath. Or if you look at the ESV footnote, vapor. So listen to your breath. Take a breath and let it out. The preacher essentially says, the merest of breaths, the merest of breaths, everything is breath. The preacher does not say everything is meaningless. Meaning can evade us, and Ecclesiastes shows how many ways of living are meaningless. But the book doesn't say that everything is meaningless, despite how some choose to translate the word havel. Instead, the preacher declares this, life is a breath. Everything is a mist, a vapor, a puff of wind, a bit of smoke. Imagine a candle, uh, one that isn't battery operated like ours. When you blow out a candle, how long does the smoke last? So set against the backdrop of the universe, human lives are very, very, very short. Like the smoke from an extinguished wick. On the other hand, you can try to grab that puff of smoke and keep some for later in your pocket. Except you can't. You can't grasp it. You can't control it. You can't hold on to it. And so the preacher starts with this point. Life is a breath, and it's short, and it's elusive. 
And it's also vanity. Because given what life actually is, life is too proud of her own appearance. Because when you see life for what it is, life is toil. Which brings us to our second point, toil. The preacher continues in verse 3. What does a person gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? So life under the sun, which is the preacher's way of saying, life as we all experience it, it's toil. It's not a smooth ride. Sometimes it's exhausting. It can even be downright brutal. And when things fell apart in the Garden of Eden, one of the consequences was toil. God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. And as humanity continued to fall further away from God, we read in Genesis, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. East of Eden is the biblical way of saying everything went south. No matter where we are geographically, we all live east of Eden, away from the presence of God and in the aftermath of the fall, and so we toil. But Ecclesiastes wants to show us that this toil is not limited to work. Part of the reason life is toil is because our efforts don't produce what we hope they will. The preacher says in verse uh, 9, Uh, Sorry, verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it said, see, this is new? It's been already in the ages before us. The preacher's showing us that there is a foundational dissatisfaction in life, a foundational dissatisfaction in life. Try as we may, we are never fully satisfied or filled by what life has to offer us. So instead, over time, again and again, life wears us out. And this point's made multiple times in Ecclesiastes, whether it's the pursuit of wisdom, the indulgence in pleasure and entertainment, climbing up the ladder of success, accumulating wealth. None of these things fulfill or satisfy a deeper ache. None of them last. And this point's going to be elaborated so many times again in the book. I'm not going to dwell much on it this morning. Because if you're honest with yourself, and your experience of life, you know what the preacher says is true. Now, your awareness of this weariness and dissatisfaction, it may come and go, but it's there. For all of us, no matter where we are in the journey of faith or where we are in the social ladder, because it's part of what it means to be east of Eden. There's no satisfaction to be found around the bend or at the next milestone or season or accomplishment. It's just not going to be there. There's nothing new under the sun that can satisfy and fill us. Now, don't misunderstand here. Obviously, since the preacher wrote this book, there's been many new things. 
But even as something, something as unimaginable as space travel, landing on the moon, or colonizing Mars should Elon Musk have his way, it's all still a form of adventure and exploration. It's a new expression of an ambition as old as humanity. So the preacher doesn't mean there's never anything new that might be invented. Obviously, that's not true. No advancements and innovations can improve life and change our world. But for all of our improvements, the human condition remains the same. We can't eliminate this inherent dissatisfaction in life. And the preacher says nothing new is out there that can or will satisfy you. So the message the preacher has for us so far is that life is short and elusive and vain, and it's full of toil and unable to satisfy. Amen. And in light of this, there's nothing we can gain from life. So that's our third point, gain. The preacher said in verse 3, what does a person gain by all the toil at which they toil under the sun? And we might think, well, a person can gain a lot. They can gain money and accumulate things. You know, they might gain a Tesla or a Roomba or more pogs or a track-themed, uh, you know, a robot-themed tracksuit. Just all gift ideas for my birthday. You know, a person can gain skills and experience. You know, they might learn to play the harpsichord or run the marathon or climb a mountain or travel the world or binge on Netflix for two weeks straight. You know, and over time... A person might gain reputation and acclaim and so on. And, and on the surface, it looks like the opposite is true, that a person can gain much in life. But the Hebrew word for gain is more like surplus. What is the surplus from our life under the sun? What remains when we're gone? What can outlast our lives you know, all these different things and experiences, they may very well develop you into a mature and interesting person, but the preacher says, so what? Once you're gone, all of it goes with you. And you might say, well, I'll leave a legacy. As the novelist Terry Pratchett said, no one is actually dead until the ripples they cause in the world die away. And it's a beautiful thought. But Ecclesiastes simply points out that the ripples don't last very long in the big picture. You know, can you name your great-great-grandparents? Can you name their interests, their vocation, any of their friends? Now, unless you're into genealogies, probably not. And that's not that far away. So look at verse 4 and 11. The preacher says, a generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The preacher is saying, there is no surplus we can acquire that will transcend death. So you can think of wisdom and pleasure and success or experience as balloons, and we fill them with our time and our energy and even our hope. And for a while, we watch them expand and grow, and it looks like something is there, but inside, it's only breath. Death is the needle that shows the truth. The balloon pops, and nothing is left. Nothing was there. 
Throughout Ecclesiastes, again and again, we will see that death is the pin that punctures every human aspiration. Death is the pin that punctures every human aspiration. The reason life is but a breath is because we die. One day you will be dead and gone and the world will go on and the generation after you will die too. And a hundred years after your death, it's most likely that no one will ever know you lived. And so Ecclesiastes confronts us with death. The preacher wants us to think about how we are going to die. The first time I really contemplated my death was when I was 18 years old. Now, I may have been late to the existential crisis game. I'll leave that to your discretion. But I was dabbling in meditation at the time, and someone I knew recommended that I meditate on the theme of death. And I thought, oh, that'd be interesting. So I sat down and tried to quiet my mind, and I tried to sit with the thought of death for a while. So I slowly repeated to myself, you will die. You will die. You will die. Why are you speaking in the second person? I will die. I will die. I will die. And after some time, it affected me. It actually rattled me. It caused me to physically shake. Because I realized that although I may put it out of my mind most days, my death is inevitable. And I don't know when it will happen, but it will come all the same. And I ended my meditation and thought, I will never do that again. <laughs> and I went back to pretending like I won't die. But we will die. We know this is true. Except in everyday life, we pretend like it's not. And in this cultural moment, the response to this dilemma is this. Make the most of your life while you have it, because it's short. YOLO, you only live once. Cherish every moment. Chase every experience. Create whatever meaning you can out of this ultimately meaningless universe. And aside from being philosophically inconsistent, because any meaning you create in a meaningless universe is still meaningless, what's rarely acknowledged is that this worldview runs on a baseline of anxiety. It runs on a baseline of anxiety. It's full of pressure. The hourglass has been turned over. The sand is moving. You don't know how much time you have. It's running out. Get going. Don't fall behind. You don't have a minute to spare. And this is the mindset that the preacher is critiquing precisely. You see, in the shadow cast by death, YOLO says, focus on what you can gain, even if it's temporary, even if it's short-lived. But there's nothing that you can gain. Instead, the preacher holds death before us and says, if you really want to learn how to live, you must think about how you will die. But we can come to a different set of conclusions than the folk wisdom of our culture. There is a choice that can be made about which path will follow. And the choice has consequences for now. The preacher's point then is this. Life is short and elusive and vain. It's full of toil and unable to satisfy. And there's nothing we can gain in life. And you don't need to seek after it. 
You don't need to seek after any gain. If you think the preacher is just depressed and has given up, or if his point depresses you, hold on. That's not what he intends to do, and that's not where he lands. From his vantage point, a life of gain is antithetical to the ways of God. Life in God's world is about gift, not about gain. And when life, for all its mess and complexity, is received as a gift, you don't have to live with a baseline of anxiety. You can actually live into joy. And believe it or not, Ecclesiastes is a book about joy. Here's just a couple examples. For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. There's nothing better than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And when all is said and done, we have to remember where Ecclesiastes ends. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. So the preacher gazes at the horizon. He sees death as the outcome. And he says, live in light of your death. There's nothing to gain. Receive life as a gift from God. Walk in his ways, and joy will accompany you. Live in light of your death. There's nothing to gain. Receive life as a gift from God. Walk in his ways and joy will accompany you. This is just an outline of the preacher's argument, of his wisdom for those of us who live east of Eden. And we're going to dig into all of that deeper in the weeks to come. But we have to remember that the preacher shares his wisdom from a specific vantage point. He's a helpful guide, but we need to fill in this sketch because the preacher didn't have the perspective to see that there is one new thing that will be done under the sun. God met us under the sun as Jesus Christ. God joined himself to the fleeting nature of human life. He took a breath. He met us in the toil. He walked with us east of Eden. The scriptures say Jesus is wisdom itself. And he said to those who have ears to hear, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? And even if we could gain the whole world, which you can't, but even if you could, it wouldn't satisfy. It wouldn't add up. There would be no surplus past your death. C.S. Lewis, the brilliant novelist and, and thinker, he said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, taps into this desire, this fundamental dissatisfaction we feel in life because he knows that our perpetual dissatisfaction is actually a longing for life beyond the sun, a longing to be free from the toil and longing for life that lasts beyond death. It's nothing more than a forgotten or unnamed desire to go home, to return to Eden, to be in the presence of God. 
The preacher says, live in light of your death. And it's wise to do that. Because it reminds you there's nothing to gain in life. But Jesus says, live in light of my death. Although there's nothing to gain in life, there's everything to gain in his death. Because his death is the pin that punctures death itself. As the Apostle Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Through his death, Christ did something new, resurrection. He opened up the door back into the presence of God. And the preacher says, receive life as a gift. And Jesus says, receive salvation. Receive everything I've done as a gift too. And so all we can do is open our hands and receive life as a gift and receive what Christ has done as a gift. And in the gift, joy accompanies us east of Eden. But the wisdom of Ecclesiastes remains true. It reminds us that even if we approach life and salvation as a gift. It's a gift we receive in the real world. It's a gift we receive east of Eden, and the world doesn't magically straighten out. We don't escape life's challenges, nor do we understand some of the maddening things that happen under the sun. But the good news is that God is with us under the sun. And Jesus has done a new thing. He's overcome death. He's reconciled us to God. He's given us new life. And he's promised that one day everything will be made new. And the gift of life will no longer be toil. 